Please join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. The notes will be on the screen. They're also available in your bulletins if you're one of those note takers. Um, you can take notes. They're right in your bulletin. Pastor Mel spoke to us last week from the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, so we're simply going to pick up where he left off. And if you remember the theme of our First Peter series is called Fighting as Victors, and we want to remember that, and that's going to make it into every sermon we have because it's all over First Peter. So Fighting as Victors is our theme. Last week, as I said, Pastor Mel spoke to us on reasons for making the Bible a priority in our lives. And so we're simply going to come out of that study and look at what Peter has for us this morning. So I'm going to be reading from verses 4 to 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, join me there. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. And I'm doing that on purpose because I just simply like the translation of this text better. I usually use the English Standard Version, but today I'm reading from the New King James Version. So listen to the Word of God, verses 4 to 12. It says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word, to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. May the Lord bless the teaching of his word this morning. If this sounds a little familiar, you're going to have to go back around seven months. This is the first lesson I ever spoke here at Wyoming Valley Church. I wasn't even candidating yet. I was simply seeking to become your missionary. Does anyone remember that? All the way back in, let's say, March, something like that. I'm seeing like one nod, so that's good. This will be fresh. Um, but this is a passage that is really meaningful to me. It's one that I've looked at several times, and, and um, this is going to be hopefully helpful to your soul, as it has been for mine all week long. So we're going to see what God teaches us today. But did you ever neglect an important message? Think about it. Did you ever neglect an important message, a message that was given to help you? I'll share a little bit of a story. Um, I don't even know when this was. Growing up at some point in my life, I know I was in school age. I know I was a teenager. But it's right around this time of year, so this is a real fitting story. We had a really icy, snowy week. It was just one of those weeks, probably February, something like that. And when you're in high school, you really look forward to those weeks because that might mean you don't have to go to school. And when you're in high school, I don't know, for one reason, that's really, really exciting when you don't have to go to school. 
So as you do, you anticipate that and you look forward and you look on the news to see if your school is canceled. And on this specific day, our school was canceled because there wasn't just snow, there was ice on the roads. And that's always a dangerous thing, right? We've had to cancel because of ice. Um, but one of these days, it was just a really icy day and the school canceled. So we had a couple options, just enjoy the day at home, you know, play in the snow or just play inside or whatever. But we decided that we were getting a little adventurous and we wanted to actually go somewhere, which already is silly, right? The school's told you it's too dangerous to go to school. But my brother, my sister, my best friend Josh, and one of Christy's good friends all decided that we want to simply go to the mall or something like that. Not too adventurous, just get out of the house, spend the day doing something like that. And so you have to remember the weather station told us there's ice on the road. It's not a good day to travel. Don't do it. Stay at home if at all possible. And we said, nah, let's go out. So we did. We were going to take my friend's Jeep because he told us that Jeeps are really good in the ice. Um, a little teaser, they're not. They're not. So we go out on the road and, you know, we're traveling to the mall, which really isn't that far from us. It's only probably eight minutes or so. But we get to this part of the road where, you know, you're leaving town and you get onto the highway. And as you get onto the highway, they had this little median. You guys know what those are, right? That separate the road. And just to give you a little context, this median was one of those meetings that sort of starts out on a slope. It like slants up and just giving you a little context there. So we're driving along, going to the mall. And as you might expect, what happened? We hit a patch of ice, a really big patch of ice. And the car that we were driving in going about this direction now starts going this direction, sliding. And I don't know, it's one of those things. If you've ever been in like in a car accident, time kind of slows down and you're able to see and know everything that's going on. And the car just starts to go diagonally. And we're all terrified, but not saying anything, not really screaming or anything, just waiting to see what happens. And the car actually went sideways and hit the median, but you have to remember, it's kind of a ramp. So it went like this. The car goes up the median, and it gets to the top of the median and just rests and settles on top of the median with like one tire on the road. And there we are, teetering on top of a median between oncoming traffic and our destination. And all of a sudden, it just hits us. What has happened? Where are we? We're in the air, <laughs> in a Jeep, in the air, and we're all very, very nervous by this. And I remember thinking to myself, and probably all of us were thinking, this was a bad idea. We shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have gone out. You know, it was ice, school was canceled. But there we are, none of us know what to do. I don't know what you would have done in that situation, but we were all teenagers not having a clue of what to do. It's not like you can just put it in reverse and go back down the median. We are trapped on the median. And this was a little bit before cell phones. But my friend, for whatever reason, had what was called a car phone. Anyone remember those? Car phones. I don't even think he hooked it onto the lighter or something like that. But he had a phone with him. And I was like, wow, that's fortuitous. So he picked up the car phone, plugged it in. It was this huge monster of a thing. And we decided, who are we going to call? You know, do we call the cops? Do we call a parent first and let them determine what we should do? We didn't want to call our parents because we knew that the parents would freak out, especially the moms. If we called one of the moms, it would really freak out. So we're like, who should we call? So we decided that we were going to call Christy's friend's brother because we thought he'd be pretty chill about it. You know, he would know what to do. He would direct us. So we decided to call her friend's brother. But she called her house because there were no cell phones. And guess who picked up? The mom. And as soon as she heard her mom's voice, she hung up. And I'm like, what did you do, Trisha? you got to tell somebody. You know, we're stuck here on a median. So I don't remember who we called after that, but we decided to call someone in authority. 
And eventually someone came and it was the, the local cops or whatever. Eventually it was this huge scene. There were lights, there was a fire engine. It was this huge thing. It was so embarrassing. Cars are going by us on the other side and they've never seen anything like this before. So they're like stopping and like rolling their window down going, are you guys okay? And we're like, yeah, we did this on purpose. I just, I wanted to know what it would be like. So yeah, yeah, we're fine. Don't worry about it. Just enjoy your day. So eventually the cops came and the paramedics came and all kinds of stuff. They actually had to chain our car down and we had to like exit out the back hatch and uh, get out that way because they were, they were concerned that, you know, any shift of the, of the weight there would cause the entire thing to roll over. So <laughs> I just remember that being a very adventurous day and, um, what was so interesting is my dad was working uh, there at the college at Clark Summit, and someone came into his office going, you will not believe what I just saw. I just saw some moron <laughs> hit the ice and slide right on top of the median. And by that point, my dad didn't hear, so he's like, what? Come to find out it was his children <laughs> who wanted to just go to the mall. But did you ever neglect an important message? We're going to look at today what we're calling the precious stone of life. And we're going to find that right in the text, verses 4 to 12. And today we're going to set before us the most important subject that has ever been laid before you, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is our subject today. And I hope you will gain a lot from this as we look into the text here. But who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we all claim to love and know and want to follow? What is it about him? What is it about Jesus Christ? 2,000 years after his death, we're still talking about him. We're still wanting to know him more and we're wanting to be like him. What is it about Jesus that causes that kind of reaction? Or maybe we can ask this question, what makes Jesus so polarizing? You would agree with me, right, that Jesus is polarizing. There are some who want to lay their lives down and follow him even unto death. All over scripture you find people like that. And then you find a people in another category who want to kill him every time he spoke. So you have these really strong polar opposites of people with Jesus Christ. Some who love him and cherish him and consider him precious. And some who want to actually get rid of him completely. And who did? Who tried? Jesus was honored and magnified as the Son of God, and at the exact same time, he was maligned as a blasphemer. Jesus had a parade for him as he entered into the streets of Jerusalem. And only moments, hours later, days later, Jesus would be crucified by those Jews. The sinners would struggle just to get near Jesus, just to grab a glimpse of him. You remember Zacchaeus, right? I just want to grab a glimpse of this Jesus Christ. I know what he's capable of. I know who I am. I need to get near him. Sinners loved to find ways to be around Jesus, but the religious leaders hated his very existence. What is it about Jesus? What is it that makes him so polarizing? Well, we're going to find that here in the text. Jesus is a very polarizing figure. And we're going to find this here in 1 Peter. Peter tells us, one of the first things he tells us, is that Jesus is a living stone. A living stone. And you have to wrap your mind around that phrase because you have to understand there's no true parallel to that. You know what a stone is, you know what rocks are, but you don't know what one is that is alive. Jesus is a living stone and there's no parallel because stones are inanimate objects, right? They're not living. They're just things that are laying there on the side of the road, laying there in your driveway, 
But Jesus is a living stone, and we have to ask ourselves, why is that significant? Why is it significant that Peter calls Jesus a living stone? Because if you've ever used stone, stone is great for a few things, isn't it? If you ever want to build something, stone is probably one of the first things you think of. Because it's strong, and it's stable, and it's secure. Three really strong elements to stone, which makes it very, very useful for building. I'm not a builder, but I know it's obvious that stone is a really good element for building. And the fact is that Jesus is a living stone is very, very good for us because we, by nature, are weak, instable, and insecure people, aren't we? We need something, someone strong, secure, and stable. And Jesus Christ is that stone. He is that living stone. If you and I build our house upon or with stone, our house is going to be strong and secure. Maybe you remember the old story of the three little pigs. I know it was brick at the end, but kind of the same idea that if you build your house with stone, it's going to be strong and secure. And it will hold up even under intense pressure. And I think Peter's using a metaphor here. A metaphor, but it's probably not the metaphor you're picturing. He's not saying here that Jesus is like a stone. You know what he's saying? Stones are like Jesus. Stones are like Jesus. They're strong, they're secure, and they're stable. And Jesus is the true stone. He is strong, more than you can comprehend. He is stable, he is secure, he is immovable. You have to understand, countless people tried to get rid of Jesus, tried to eradicate him, tried to get rid of him. They were unable to get rid of him and his people and his testimony and his church because Jesus is strong just like a stone. But depending upon your perspective, stones have another quality, don't they? They can trip you up. They can cause you to stumble. You ever get one in your shoe? Sometimes stones are a nuisance. Depending on your perspective, if you're a builder, you like stone. Stone, you know, there's quarries and stuff like that. People who really value stone. But if you're not one of those builders, sometimes stones to you can be a nuisance because they can cause you to trip. Anyone ever tripped on a stone? I have, very awkwardly. Uh, tripped on a stone probably more than one occasion. I've tripped on a stone in my path, and I once, unfortunately, saw a young lady violently fall in a gravel path simply because the stones were underneath her feet. So stones can be a nuisance, can't they? And if you've ever got one in your shoe, what has to happen? you got to stop. you got to take the shoe off, and you got to get rid of that rock because it is so annoying, isn't it? You guys ever been there? Have to remove that pebble. So depending on your perspective, stones are either great or they're either a nuisance. And isn't that how our Lord Jesus was treated? Isn't that how they treated our Lord Jesus? Either let's build upon him, Many did. Many still do. Or let's eradicate him. Let's get rid of him right now. He has to be gone. We can't even let bygones be bygones. Jesus has to go now. And that's what we're finding here in 1 Peter, is that Jesus is a living stone, and there are some who build upon him, but there's others who reject him. And because they reject him, they stumble over him. Like a rock in your shoe that you have to get rid of. I know I've slipped on ice before, but did you ever slip on a stone? See, in Germany, they have these things. I asked Christy once um, what she meant because sometimes she said, she said they have these things called Stolpersteins or Stolpersteins in Germany. And these things are actually called stumbling stones. 
And what these things are is they're a metaphor for a stumbling block. It's a 10 by 10 centimeter slightly raised concrete cube bearing a brass plate inscribed with the name and life dates of victims of Nazi extermination and persecution. They put these things, these stumbling stones, in their cobblestone path, not highly raised, but slightly raised, so that you will stumble on them. And as soon as you stumble upon them, you know what you do? You look down. And by looking down, you look at the names, you look at the families, you look at the dates, and you remember what happened. Isn't that interesting? That they have these all over Germany, these things called stumbling stones, and the intent is for you to stumble so that you look down and remember what happened. Because forgetting history would put them in the danger of repeating history. And trust me, Christie says all the time, that is their greatest fear, is that Germany will continue and repeat what they have done several, several decades ago. But Jesus Christ is in a similar state for many here upon the earth. He's a rock. He's strong. He's secure. He's stable. He's a foundation. As we're going to learn here, he's a cornerstone, which is the most important piece of a building. But other people consider him a nuisance, and they stumble over him. And it says in verse 7 here, if you look down at your text, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Think about that phrasing for a minute. The stone that the builders rejected, the builders were building something. They were, they were building their lives, building their religion. They looked at Jesus Christ and rejected him and said, no value. Jesus became the chief cornerstone, God's cornerstone. So to these people, he became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It says they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. See, man rejects Jesus, generally speaking, don't they? Man in our world rejects Jesus Christ. They want no part of him. They want nothing to do with him. They don't want to follow him. They don't want to love him. They want him out of their lives. So men reject Jesus Christ just like they did 2,000 years ago. But God considers him precious. Can you think about that for a minute? Men reject Jesus, but God considers him precious and worthy to build everything upon 1914, uh, Matthew 19.14, this is a similar illustration. God says to children, let the children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Aren't children an example of that as well? Some people cherish and treasure them, and to others they're a nuisance. And in our day and age, people are killing them before they even come out of the womb. But God says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let the children come to me. So it doesn't matter what men say, is it? It doesn't matter what men do. It only matters what God says. If God says Jesus is precious, we had better listen. And if Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, referring to children, we had better cherish them and consider them valuable. But men rejected Jesus. They crucified him on a Roman cross. They said of Jesus, he is of no value. Toss him aside like a rock in your shoe. Get rid of him entirely. But Jesus is God's cornerstone. And I find that amazing that God has set it up that Jesus became the cornerstone for all of eternity. Not just on earth. Not just for religion here in Christian circles. But for all of eternity, Jesus is God's cornerstone. Everything truly good is built directly upon Jesus. 
And everything truly bad comes to us when we reject him. That's how God has set it up. You find worth in Jesus. You find value in Jesus. You find him precious. You build upon Jesus and you are set up for the rest of eternity. But if you reject Jesus, you are doomed. That's how God has set it up. That's how valuable and precious the Lord Jesus is. There is no middle land. Acceptance or rejection. Set up for all of eternity or doomed for all of eternity. Isn't that interesting? But men, men looked at Jesus Christ and said, he's of no value. Toss him aside. He's just a guy with radical ideas. Just get rid of him. He's just a nuisance. He's just causing our religion to look worse than it did before. Get rid of Jesus Christ. But what they were actually doing is rejecting the chief cornerstone. See, if we don't value Jesus now and build upon him, we will stumble over Jesus and be haunted by the neglect of such treasure and worth for the rest of eternity. Because one day it will hit us. One day it will be known to every single person how valuable, how strong, how secure Jesus is. And for those who built their lives upon him, they're set. They're set. They're strong. They're secure. I mean, we're going to look at here that we have become like living stones as well. But for those who fully and finally reject Jesus Christ, not only will they be void of an eternal foundation, but they will stumble over Jesus by being disobedient to his word, and it will lead to their eternal ruin. And that's weighty, but God has made it that way because he has set everything upon Jesus Christ. You can miss some things in this world and still be okay, still be healthy. You can get some of the word of God wrong, although I don't encourage it, but you can't get Jesus wrong. You can't. If we miss Jesus, if we stumble over Jesus, it is to our ruin. And so the word of God makes it very, very clear time and time again, book after book, chapter after chapter, it is Jesus Christ. It's all Jesus Christ. And so we need to listen to that today. So just like Germany, looking down at the stumbling stones and realizing you stumbled over Jesus would be such regret, such eternal tragedy to realize that the thing that you stumbled over, the thing that you rejected, is actually God's chief cornerstone. But Peter's saying that is going to happen. So not following Jesus is actually stumbling over your potential eternal foundation to certain eternal death. Here's an illustration of that, okay? Kind of a silly one, but it'll make sense of what we're talking about. So imagine you're driving on the road, and not an icy day. Just a normal day. and I'm not going to pull the audience here, but anyone ever have road rage? It happens, unfortunately, to some degree from time to time. So imagine one day someone just does something really boneheaded, gets in your way, and you just get really angry at that, okay? So you decide to let them know. So you drive up next to them, you honk, maybe you pull back in front of them and go, okay, message sent. But then you realize that a stoplight comes up and the guy pulls right next to you. You look over, he looks over. It's your boss. Imagine that. Imagine not only rejecting something, having anger towards something, but the something that actually helps you and sustains you each and every week. This is way, way more than that. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's cornerstone, and if you and I reject him, it's akin to eternal ruin and tragedy forever. But Peter doesn't leave us alone there, just with the warning and the threat of that. He gives us eight pros to following Jesus from 1 Peter 4, chapter 2, 
verses 4 to 10. And I want to look at these pros here we find right in the text. Because we want to set before you why it is so important, besides what we've just said, to follow Jesus Christ. Look at number one. It comes from verse 5. It says, we too become like living stones. We too become like living stones. So Jesus is the living stone. And I think that makes sense to us. We understand how strong and important Jesus is. But when we trust in Jesus and follow Jesus, Peter says, we become like living stones. We become strong. We become stable. We are secure because we're founded upon the cornerstone. As weak, unstable, insecure people, if we're upon Jesus Christ, we are like Jesus Christ in the most important respects. We're strong, we're stable, we're secure, and we are a part of God's eternal house. And that's the next thing we find, is that God is building this eternal spiritual house, which is going to be God's greatest achievement. He's building right now an eternal kingdom, an eternal structure. And yes, it's physical. We will see it with eyes, heavenly eyes someday. But this is a spiritual thing. We know what physical houses are like. They're all around us. But physical houses and stones, everything in this world is representing something greater and bigger that is on the spiritual side. So God is constructing this eternal spiritual house and structure called his kingdom. And you and I, if we're founded upon Jesus Christ, are a very important piece of that structure. Isn't that wild to know? That God's greatest achievement is going to be his kingdom and you and I can be part of that kingdom. God's greatest structure. Janine and I, since we've been here in Pennsylvania, have moved five times in four years. And we are set to move again, unfortunately. But when you get to the eternal kingdom of God, you never move again. You're there permanently, a part of God's kingdom forevermore. And I'm looking forward to that. I really am. I'm looking forward to being a part of God's most greatest and treasured achievement, his kingdom. And he'll say, Todd, you're a part of that. Welcome into it. Come into your kingdom as well. Next, it says we are a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. And we're able to offer spiritual sacrifices to God that are accepted. Now, we know what priests are like, right? They're in the news a lot, unfortunately. But we know what priests are like nowadays, right? Um, Back in the day, priests were not the way you're picturing today. Okay, Back in the day, they had these things called priests. They had these things called high priests. And these were the chosen guys who could go into the tabernacle and offer a spiritual sacrifice to God. And no one else could do it. So even if you wanted to give something to God that would please him and make him happy, you had to go through the high priest. Only the high priest could enter into the tabernacle and lay something before God that he would accept because of God's holiness. And if you remember from the Old Testament, these guys had to wear a lot of weird things. They had to do a lot of weird things. And it had to be precise because God would not accept their sacrifice any other way. So the fact that Peter says here that you and I are a part of a holy priesthood is a little shocking. Because what that means is you and I can give God sacrifices that he accepts with no medium, no mediator besides the Lord Jesus himself. We can go directly to God, lay a sacrifice before him, and he will accept it and want it. Because it says we can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So just pastors, just people in ministry? No. Anyone founded 
upon the cornerstone, can offer sacrifices that God wants that are acceptable. We can enter into the spiritual tabernacle through prayer, through our lives, through Jesus Christ, and we can give things that God accepts. And it says in verse 6, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We will find acceptance and not shame from our God. We can proclaim his mercies, his excellencies to this world. And that's a privilege. I hope you find that's a privilege. That you and I can actually do something for the God of the universe. I mean, we've talked about this in the past. People need a purpose in this world, don't they? They need a purpose. And without a purpose, people struggle and find depression and find suicidal thoughts because they wonder, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why do I exist? If you understand that you and I can offer spiritual sacrifices to God and we're a part of his eternal kingdom, the purpose is right there. That's a really important thing to live for and exist for. And so he says, you will find acceptance and not shame. And that's the next thing we find. God will never put us to shame. And again, that's a little shocking because you and I started sinners. Wretched, miserable creatures. But God will say to us, come in, child. Give me something. Give me what I asked for. I want it. God will never say to you, Psh, you, this, he will never put you to shame because of Jesus Christ. He wants your life and he wants my life. Isn't that a great thing to know about God? Did you ever be, were you ever bullied as a kid? Bullies, at least back in the day when I went to school, were all about shaming people. Shaming you, making you feel worse, making you feel miserable, making you feel small. What, isn't God in the, the uh, opportunity there to make us shameful and small and insignificant because of our sins? And yet we find the exact opposite. He says, come and offer me your gift, child. I want it. And who makes that possible? The cornerstone, the living stone, the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one that allows us to go to God and say, God, this is what I have. This is my life. It doesn't feel like a lot. I don't know if you can use it, but I'm going to lay it before you, give it to you. And God says, I want it. I accept it. Thank you. I will use it. And we give all glory to the Lord Jesus Christ for that. Sin doesn't define us any longer. We've said that a couple weeks ago, that sin doesn't define the Christian any longer. Jesus defines the Christian. Jesus is our definition. Jesus is the one that is every quality that God expects. He looks and he sees his son upon our souls. And he accepts him. He accepts us because of that. And then the next one, which I think is one of the most treasured ones, is that Jesus is precious to those who believe. Jesus is precious to those who believe. See, the greatest treasure you and I could ever receive is the fountain of all treasures, isn't it? The greatest treasure you could ever receive is the fountain of all treasures. That's who the Lord Jesus is. He's not just a stone. He's a fountain, a fountain of treasures. I'm going to use a silly illustration here, but and I don't mean to demean the Lord Jesus. That's not my point. But you guys have seen television shows and movies where there's a genie coming out of a bottle, right? And uh, the genie comes out. And the, the old joke is, right, if you ever have a genie come out of a bottle, what's the first wish you should ask for? Three more wishes. Or a thousand or endless wishes, right? Just ask for entire uh, eternal wishes because if you have eternal wishes, you're going to get whatever you want for the rest of time. 
Well, again, not to call Jesus a genie because he's nothing like it. But when we get Jesus Christ, we get the fountain of all treasures. You don't just get a treasure. You don't just get an eternal treasure. You get the fountain of all treasures. You get the Lord Jesus himself. Everything that is good, everything that is pure, everything that God considers wonderful comes to Christians because Jesus is the fountain. And so Peter says, if you understand that, Jesus is precious to you. Going on, he says, we are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are the most privileged people who have ever existed. God's specifically chosen people. And I say specifically because he actually mentions your name when he thinks of you. He doesn't just consider church or Wyoming Valley Church even. But your name, your soul was paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. God considers you precious and privileged in his eyes. And so we can say today, we're confident that we are the apple of God's eyes. The greatest thing God ever created was you and I. You and I will last into eternity. Animals will not. The creation will not. The world itself, it says in Revelation, will be rolled up like a scroll. But you and I, to God, are precious. And we are God's chosen race, his holy nation, a people for his own possession. And we learn from chapter 1, we're even more privileged than the prophets of God. We're even more privileged than the angels because the angels and the prophets want to experience grace firsthand. And they're unable to because that's not what God has for them. But he does have it for you and I. And so we are the most privileged people who have ever existed. Two more. It says, we have been called out of darkness and into light. We have been called out of darkness and into light. The devil's domain has no rights to us any longer. Amen? Amen, Amen to that? The devil has no rights to us any longer. And we can see clearly because we've been brought into the light. We can understand what he's doing. We can understand the trips and the falls and the pitfalls and the snares that he's setting up. We can understand what he's trying to do, and we can understand how to follow Jesus Christ. Not only have we been brought out of his domain, but we've been set into the light. Now everything is clear. We don't stumble any longer. We don't have to. We can see clearly. We can know Christ. We can understand God. We can do his will. And we are never set to go back to the devil, ever. Because the Lord Jesus Christ forbids it. We belong to God God loves us, and God will never let the devil steal what belongs to him. We've been called out of darkness and into light. And the last one says we have received mercy from God. There was a time in our life where we hadn't received mercy. But Peter says, now that you are upon Jesus Christ, mercy flows. Mercy flows. The dam has been busted, and mercy flows to your soul and to your heart. And we're not responsible to pay for our sins because Christ Jesus has paid for them already. We are now heirs of the kingdom of God. We are now back where we belong with God forever, and we now have a payment of blood upon our accounts, the gift of righteousness upon our accounts, mercy upon our accounts. And so one day Jesus Christ will say about us, they're mine, I died for them, my blood was given for them. Eight reasons, and I know we went quickly, but eight reasons we can follow Jesus Christ and should follow Jesus Christ and build our entire lives upon Jesus Christ. Eight reasons. 
I hope at least one or all eight of those inspire you greatly to say, yes, he's worthy, or use the term that Peter uses, he's precious. But we find a couple cons, a couple negatives for not following Jesus Christ. They're also found in the same verses. These are really harsh-sounding things, but listen to these things. These are three really big reasons to not, uh, excuse me, to follow Jesus Christ, because these are cons not on, let's see how I could say that properly, cons for not following Jesus Christ. Number one, we're rejecting the stone that could hold us up and sustain us forever. By not following Jesus Christ, we're rejecting the stone that could hold us up and sustain us forever. You ever heard the old adage, don't bite the hand that feeds? Don't reject the stone that gives life. How good is life? Think about that. How good is life? Physical, earthly life, how good is it? Isn't life good when life is, is going well and it's not threatened? Life is the vehicle to everything good in our lives. When life is threatened, everything is scary, isn't it? When our life is threatened, when my children's life are threatened, everything is scary because life is good. Life is the thing that I want the most for me and those I love. When we lose life, we lose everything, or at least we seem to. So how good is life? It's hard to calculate, right? It's hard to know how valuable life is. Well, if we reject the stone, the stone of life, we reject the thing that can hold us up and sustain us forever. And then Peter goes on to say, we will stumble over the stone by our disobedience to eternal ruin. Is anything worth eternal ruin? Anything at all? Any amount of fun, any amount of pleasure, any amount of friends, any amount of joy here upon the earth, is it worth the threat of eternal ruin? Because I told you before, there's no middle ground. We don't just lose out in heaven if we reject Jesus Christ. We reap destruction. And the last one, along with our life, along with our life being lost, all our treasures will be lost forever. So you don't just lose your life, you lose everything that's important to you. If you don't have the cornerstone, if you're not set upon the stone of Christ, you lose your life and you lose everything that's meaningful to you. We can't afford to miss out on the stone of life. We can't, people. This is so important. We started this lesson by asking this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? These things are not found in 1 Peter, but I want to set before you five or six really important things that the scripture speaks of about Jesus Christ, all pertaining to life. And I want you to listen to these one right after another. It says, number one, Jesus created the world and all life. Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1, chapter 2, Jesus created the world and all life. He's the author. He's the reason. He's the genesis for all life. Jesus Christ himself. He's the reason you're here today. He's the reason you have breath in your lungs right now. Jesus is the author of life, all life. He created the world. Number two, it says in Hebrews 1, 3, that Jesus upholds the world and all life. Right now, he commands the world and the solar system and everything to consist, to continue, to keep spinning, to keep going, because he's also the upholder of the world and all life. <clears throat> And it says in Matthew 6, 26, the third one, Jesus is the sustainer of all life. So you can ask this question, where do provisions come from in this life? Where do they come from? 
You well, it's the store. They come from the store. They come from me working, then going to the store. But where did the store get them? And I mean, keep following back until you find out that it comes from the fountain of life. It says in uh, Matthew 6, 26, that he provides even for the birds of the air that I never think about, you know, unless one does something to my car. I never think about the birds of the air, but Jesus Christ feeds them every single day. And he sustains you and I every single day because he's the author of life, he upholds life, and he is the sustainer of all life. And remember the question, how important is life? You can't calculate it. Jesus is the author, he's the sustainer of all life. But even beyond earthly life, this is what's so important about Jesus Christ. He's the redeemer of mankind and the giver of eternal life. Are you starting to find something really valuable with Jesus Christ? He sustains your very existence here on earth, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. He is the giver of eternal life. The famous passage, John 3.16, says that. We also find it in John 15, verses 5 to 6, that Jesus is not just the author of life on earth, which would be great enough. He's also the author of eternal life. Two more things. It says in John 6.35 that Jesus is the bread of life the bread of life. He is the provisions of life. So we ask the question, where do the provisions come from? Well, they come from Jesus, but you could also say this confidently, the provisions are Jesus himself. The way you and I sustain, are, are sustained every single day is by the Lord Jesus Christ in our soul, in our breath, in our lungs, upon this world. If Jesus doesn't exist, neither do we, neither do this world. He is the sustainer and author of all life. And the last thing, he is the fountain of eternal life. And if you get the fountain, you get life forevermore. If you get the fountain of life, you get life forevermore. I, don't, I said we don't just want the treasure, right? We don't just want life. We want the author of life, and that is available to every single one of us. I need you to consider this quickly with me. Can you consider the state of your soul without Jesus? Imagine the state of your soul without the stone of life. Without Jesus Christ, we are severed from all things that pertain to life, both physical and eternal. Everything good that we love about life flows from the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't we want life? Don't we? Don't you want life? I mean, that's an obvious question. If I polled everybody here and said, do you want to live? Do you want to live through the day? Do you want to live through the week? Do you want to live through the year? Do you want to live beyond the grave? Would anyone say no to that? Anyone who truly understands the goodness of life would say absolutely to that. But consider the state of your soul without Jesus because we come to this passage in Matthew 7, and I wish I had the time to turn there, but I don't think I do. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. It says, those who build their house upon Jesus is the one who builds their house upon the rock. And the one who doesn't build their house upon Jesus builds their house upon shifting sand. There's old children's songs that talk about this passage all the time that we sing with our children. But consider the state of your soul if you were on shifting sand. And according to the scriptures, we find out that the great shift is coming. It may not be here yet. You may be able to stand upon the world and the world's goods for a while. But if you're on sand, the great shift is coming. And when that shift comes, if we're not upon the rock, we are going to collapse. And it says in Matthew 7, great 
will be the fall of it. You will lose your life. You will lose your treasures. You will lose your hope and your security forevermore. And we also find this in Scripture all over, that the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking before the great shift, the great collapse is coming. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Every single day, every single moment, we, we, we move closer and closer to the end. You are closer now, I am closer now than we've ever been to eternity. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is going by quickly. And Peter is trying to pull out from us that we can build our house upon the rock this very day if we're not yet. Because the end is very near and soon everything will be determined forever. Are you upon the stone of life or upon the shifting sand of destruction? And you would love to give yourself the benefit of the doubt today and say, yeah, I'm on Jesus. I don't reject him. I don't want to kill him. I love him enough. He's important. He's in the mix. If I had a big stew pot of my life, Jesus would be an ingredient. He's in there somewhere. But that's not what Scripture requires, is it? That's not the polarizing figure that Jesus is. That's not what Jesus left us to consider. Full acceptance or full rejection. Rock or sand. Not rocky sand. Rock or sand for the rest of eternity. If we're on sand and not the stone, we're flirting with eternal ruin. Time is waning. Time is going quickly. This has to change if this isn't the reality for us. And this is the most important thing I'm going to pull from this lesson. It says in verse 7, to those who believe he is precious. That's what it says in the New King James. And with our last moments, I just want to set before you the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in verse 4, listen to it three times, three times right in a row. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Are you starting to get it? Are you starting to understand this thread of Jesus being not only important, but precious and chosen and crucial for your soul? God chose Jesus. Who cares if men reject him? Who cares if men reject the one that God considers the cornerstone? The God of the universe who says Jesus is everything. Let men reject him. If the God of the universe says, regardless of what man says about my son, I am telling you today, he is the chief cornerstone. Who cares what man says? It only matters what the one true God says. And if he is the cornerstone, we cannot exaggerate Jesus Christ. The worst thing we can do is undervalue him and reject him, and neglect him. Maybe we're not rejectors. Maybe we're neglectors. Maybe it's like the story I asked you at the beginning, did you ever neglect an important message? Maybe it's just because we don't think about it enough. Maybe we don't set Jesus before us every single day as this term, precious. Because there are things in your life, right, that you consider things you like, 
There's things that you love, and then there's things that are precious to you. And I asked Janine, what kinds of things would those be in our lives? What kind of things would be on a list of things that are precious? The things at the top of the list besides the Lord Jesus is my family. My wife and my little kids are precious to me. When it is threatened that I might lose one of those, which we've had a couple instances in the six years or so of having children, it's terrifying. Terrifying to lose something that I consider precious. Jesus is precious. In fact, you could say Jesus is the precious of all the precious. You could scarcely get by without one of those things in your life here upon the earth, but without Jesus, you collapse. Can we overemphasize Jesus? Can we overexaggerate Jesus? It's impossible. So the next question I have for you today is how do you tell if Jesus is precious to you? How do you know? Again, I would love to say yes today in full confidence. Jesus is precious to me because I'm here at church and that's why I'm here, because I love Jesus Christ. But what about every other moment of the day? Is Jesus precious to you? Number one, here's a way you can tell. Does he hear constant thanksgiving and praise? If he's precious, isn't that obvious? To thank him and praise him all day long? Jesus, without you, I'm nothing. Jesus, without you, I collapse. Jesus, you're the sustainer of life. You're the giver of eternal life. You're the one that allows my uh, sacrifices to be accepted before God. Thank you, Jesus. Number two, are knowing and obeying his commandments your delight and desire? Not just do you or do you strive to, but are they your delight and your desire to do it? Because I know what it's like to fall into a chore-like Christianity. That is not the Christianity that we find in the scriptures. We find one of suffering and things like that. There are valleys, there are great suffering times in the Christian life, but the people that went through those seasons still had joy. Still had great joy in doing the will of God. And that's what I find so astonishing that I want in my soul. And I think for us to experience this kind of perspective... I mentioned, to you, to this, uh, mentioned this to you a few weeks ago that one of the illustrations I think of salvation is when you're trapped on the sea alone in a raft with no food and no water and no signs of land or rescue. Day after day, you're withering, you're dying, and all of a sudden a huge rescue ship comes your way. Have you remembered what Jesus has done for you? Have you remembered where you'd be without him? Is following him a delight or something that has to be done? So I'll try to do it. If you understand what it's like to be near death or to be dead already, and the rescue ship came and scooped up your soul and said, you're mine forever, should it be a delight and desire to follow him? Number three, do others hear about your love for him? I just had a conversation with someone this week where it was a delight to tell someone about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it a delight for you to tell others about what's most precious to you? I don't think it's our job to try and convert people. I don't know if I can even try to do that. That's up to the Holy Spirit. But you know what I can do? I can burst forth with what is precious to me. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I talk about my wife and kids because I love them. They're precious to me. Do people hear about the Lord Jesus Christ in any given week, any given day from us? I'm sorry, I have to burst forth. Jesus 
is so precious to me. He's my entire existence. He's the reason I wake up. He's the reason I have hope. He's the reason I have security. He's the reason I have life beyond the grave. I have to talk about him. That's a way that you can tell that Jesus is precious. Number four, would you and do you give up anything to follow him? And I said this before, if you've been, if you've understood that Jesus is precious, you will understand that you can lose anything except Jesus Christ. So does he have a blank check? Does Jesus have a blank check in your life? Can he ask anything at any time? And you will say, it's my delight, Jesus. Okay, it's going to be hard. I'm going to need help. I might stumble along the way, but if this is what you want, Jesus, why would I withhold this from you? You are my precious one. And number five, the way that you know that Jesus is precious to you is does he bring utter joy to your soul? Do you have joy from being able to build up the precious stone of life? To build on him? Does that give you joy to be able to say, I am building the kingdom of God here. Everything I do for Jesus Christ matters and will live on into eternity. Everything. Doesn't that bring joy that you're not wasting your time here upon this earth? Isn't that going to be one of the biggest regrets people figure out in the last day? What was I doing Everything I lived for was a sham. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if I had fun. It didn't matter if I was successful or went to school. It didn't matter if I had a great, important job. It's all gone. But the Christian will say, I invested. I invested. Eternity is here, and my treasures are waiting for me. Does that list seem impossible to us or obvious to us? That if Jesus was precious, we would find all of those things a part of our life. The last thing he says, which we're probably going to use this the next lesson as well because we don't have a lot of time to give to it, but if Jesus is precious to you, this is what he says in verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says, Beloved, I beg you. You're a sojourner. You're a pilgrim. This is not your homeland. Live like it. See, there are things called aliens. There actually are. Aliens do exist. They're the Christians. Because we don't belong to this earth. And that, that should bring delight to my soul because I don't want to belong to this earth. I don't want to be associated with this earth because this earth is not a great place. But we are heavenly citizens set on a journey, aren't we? And once you understand that you're a heavenly citizen set upon a journey, you listen to Peter and he says, abstain from those lusts which wage war against your soul. Fight. Fight as a victor. You are a heavenly citizen. You have been redeemed. You are an alien and a stranger upon this world. Live like it. And set before the Gentiles, which in this passage simply means unbelievers, people who reject Jesus. Set before them a testimony of what it looks like to treasure Jesus Christ. So that one day, on the last day, everyone will be forced to speak honestly, won't they? Everyone will be forced on the last day to speak honestly. And even those who rejected Jesus Christ will say of the Christians, they did well. They lived honorably. 
they knew that Jesus was precious. I didn't, but they did. So he says, as sojourners and exiles, remember that this earth is not your home. Live like a citizen of the kingdom of God. Wage war against those passions that are sinful, that are hurting you, that are hurting God. Wage war against them. And if you do wage war against them, guess who fights for you? The Lord himself. Just by waging war doesn't mean you get victory, right? But you do because Jesus fights for you. And the last chapter of the story is going to be the Gentiles saying to all of creation, all of eternity, Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he is the precious stone of life. So are you founded upon the precious stone of life today? Are you? Is that something that is a delight of you? Is that something that can be tested and validated to say, not only do I think of myself as a Christian, Jesus is precious to me. He's my stone of life, and I build upon him right now and every single day of my life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this lesson. I hope I said before them, before these people, Father, what is important to consider that Jesus is the precious stone of life. Father, help us. Help myself. I live in a world that rejects Jesus, a world that doesn't value Jesus. I live in a world that, deval that values sin and things that will eventually be gone. But I pray that we would understand how valuable Jesus is today, that he is the stone of life, that you consider him the cornerstone of all eternity. And if we build upon him, Father, we invest every single day of our lives. And if we neglect Jesus, if we reject the cornerstone, then it is to our ruin and our fault. Because you have set before us every opportunity, every motivation to live for Christ. And I ask that you would help us remember these things. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know what it's like to be founded upon the rock of Christ, then I pray that they would explore that today and find your precious salvation. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.